For centuries, humans have been growing alongside our botanical brethren. Our histories have mixed and mingled to bring us modern medical marvels, faded folklore, and everything in between. Of course, in order to understand the plant, we have to start with its roots. I'm M. Grebner Gaddis, and this is Rooted. Hello, and welcome back to another week of Rooted. This week, we're digging into a plant with a seed that's just as well known as its flower, poppies. There are a ton of different poppies out there, but for the sake of time, I'll be speaking about them all generally and then diving into specifics as needed. Poppies are part of the Papaveraceae family, more commonly known as the poppy family, with famous relatives like the ever-edgy and beautiful Bleeding Heart, and the zany and delightful Dutchman's Breeches, which might just be my new favorite floral discovery. But back to poppies. They are typically annuals or short-lived perennials, but they reseed so freely that most of us just assume they're perennials, because once you've planted them, you're never going to be poppy-free again. At least, not if they can help it. They're characterized by their long stalks, which are sometimes up to a meter long, and their large, showy blooms, which can be almost any color. Most blooms have between 4 and 12 petals, which form a circular, almost plate-like bloom around a tightly clustered whorl. In temperate climates, poppies can be found blooming from early spring well into summer, but they actually prefer to get their start in the winter, where their tiny seeds have a better chance of establishing before some bigger and faster growing plants has a chance to put roots down. Since we aren't just talking about one plant, they have a variety of different native regions, but most originate from the Mediterranean Basin, Europe, or Southeast Asia. Perhaps the most iconic poppy, the opium poppy, or Papaver somfrenium, is native to the Mediterranean Basin and prefers a more mild winter, temperate climate, and a sea breeze if it can get it. When poppies go to seed, they form a dense little pod that kind of resembles a pomegranate, and inside are thousands of tiny black seeds lying in wait to be sprinkled hither, thither, pretty much anywhere the wind or peckish birds will take them. While we can't all just be whisked away to faraway lands by breeze or bird, I can take you on a bit of a journey through time. This week, we'll start where we pretty much always do, Ancient Greece. Poppies are said to be a symbol of the god Morpheus, the god of dreams. If you remember back to the Willow episode, I told you all about Persephone's mom and how she was absolutely worried sick about her daughter. Yeah, well, apparently our guy Morpheus created poppy seeds just to help her calm down and go to sleep through all of that. They weren't just for the gods, though. Athletes at the time used to drink a mixture of honey, poppy seeds, and wine to help them stay healthy and strong during their competitions. Sort of like an ancient Grecian Gatorade, I guess? They did this because they believed the poppy was used to improve fertility, health, and strength. Before that, the Assyrians, the people before the Greeks, called them the daughters of the field due to the fact that poppies often grew alongside prized food crops like wheat and was thought to help build up the soil. 
Meanwhile in Egypt, the poppy seems to have been culturally important, popping up in tombs, jewelry, and even furniture. We aren't entirely sure what they used it for or how, but it's safe to assume it was probably about the same as everyone else, part painkiller, part immune booster, and part party starter. Poppies are also commonly used as a symbol of remembrance for fallen soldiers, especially the common poppy, also sometimes called the corn poppy, Papaver rhodiase. This flower gained this meaning due to the fact that it was often the first flower to reappear on the battlefield after both the Napoleonic Wars of the 19th century and World War II. This is likely because the cannons and other weapons of that period left a great deal of lime deposits in the soil, which created a perfect place for poppies while also helping to keep some of their competitors out with something beautiful being the first to bloom so shortly after something so hideous, it's easy to understand why they would have become a symbol of hope and remembrance. Besides just symbolism, poppies have played a vital role in medicine and culture for pretty much as long as we've known about them. All species of poppy have been used as a painkiller and sedative all over the world, which is really interesting given the many different varieties and regions they're found in. We know they're effective at treating these ailments because of the opium they contain in both their seeds and in higher concentration in the milky sap that comes from their seed pods. This is typically harvested by slashing the young seed pods while they're still green, which allows the sap to ooze out where it's collected and allowed to air dry in wooden boxes until it's fully cured. The resulting resin is what would have historically been sold to be smoked, injected, or drank in some kind of wine or tea. While we had been turning to poppies and their opium to cure pain for centuries, it wasn't until the Victorian era that the use of opium as a recreational drug skyrocketed, with the increase in opium dens, which allowed people to be social while enjoying the more whimsical effects of opium. Opium causes its users to feel an initial rush a sudden burst of euphoria that makes them see the world through rose-colored glasses. Then, it causes the user to fall into a deep state of relaxation where pain is decreased and they're at ease. This happens because the alkaloids in opium are able to target specific receptors in the brain that are responsible for pain, coughing, etc. And it essentially tells them to take some time off, thus literally releasing all of your inhibitions. Now that we know how and why opium works, what the heck are opium dens? Well, they were all the rage in the Victorian era and essentially were just like coffee shops. Only instead of ingesting caffeine, people were smoking opium, usually through a pipe or by using a sort of oil lamp, a la the caterpillar in Alice in Wonderland. Contrary to the dark London stereotypes Charles Dickens was partial to spreading, these opium dens weren't just frequented by the seedy underbelly types in London. Pun fully intended, I assume. Anyway, he was wrong in saying that only the lower class enjoyed a good opiate, as plenty of London's greatest minds and most inspired creatives did some of their best thinking around these parts. Dickens' storytelling in this case was actually rooted in a deeply enmeshed stereotype that immigrants from China were quote-unquote ruining the high society in London, 
which was laughable for like many reasons. Firstly, the number of people who left China to move to England at this time was in the low hundreds, compared to the US and Canada where populations were booming by the thousands due to folks looking to find a fresh start in a new country. Secondly, I just want to know where Charles Dickens thought they were getting all of this tea. As if his highfalutin friends could have gone a day without their perfectly prepared cuppa, which was carefully cultivated over centuries by the very people he was now accusing of ruining his precious social hierarchy. As if they weren't all literally marrying their siblings. Yikes. Anyway, I share this mostly because the historical depictions in Hollywood and beyond of opium dens tend to further this stereotype. And while it's true that they were typically run by Chinese immigrants, to say they ruined London society is simply not true and contributes to hateful misinformation that was intentionally spread by long-dead rich white dudes who couldn't accept that different doesn't mean less than. While some folks were using opium to fuel their fiendish behavior, French pharmacist's assistant Friedrich Willem had become fascinated with how it worked, so much so that he did a series of experiments, mostly on himself, to find out which parts were the best at curing pain. That's when he discovered what he called morphine, an organic alkaloid from opium that he named after the Greek god Morpheus. Because while he was a genius, he was also still a giant nerd at heart. Morphine would go on to become a smashing success, with medical professionals suggesting it as a painkiller left and right, and even touting it as a cure to opioid abuse. Oof. As we know, morphine is still used today to treat chronic and or intense pain because it is so effective. However, it also remains to be highly addictive so doctors don't prescribe it with nearly as much fervor as they used to. It's also how we discovered codeine, fentanyl, and the moment you've likely been waiting for, heroin. See, as morphine's heyday was ramping up, so was the American Revolutionary War. And as soldiers were coming home, doctors noticed something a little scary. Once soldiers were on morphine, they really struggled to stop using it and they started developing a tolerance and dependency at an alarming rate, with many of the soldiers who had been prescribed morphine dying tragically of overdose. Society at that time was particularly unkind in their view of addiction, seeing morphine addiction as a shameful flaw of character and shunning those who relied on it. Now, it seemed like morphine was even worse than opium when it came to addiction, so doctors searched high and low for an answer. And wouldn't you know it, in 1874, they found heroin, the perfect cure for morphine addiction because it was exactly the same, but different. Heroin was created by chemist Alder Wright, who decided the logical cure to any addiction was to give folks that very thing, but add in a few other chemicals to make it less appealing. Coming as a shock to no one, it turns out that opiates are not a cure for opioid addiction, and heroin was actually way more addictive than even morphine. In the 1890s, a chemist working for Bayer even found a way to synthesize heroin, making it even more readily available. Oh boy! By 1907, heroin addiction was a widespread issue many Americans were facing. 
So, the FDA made opioids a controlled substance, as they continue to be today. Of course, we're still allowed to grow poppies and use their seeds, though technically opium poppy, more commonly known as bread seed poppy, is illegal to grow here in the United States. However, most local law enforcement isn't going to arrest you or force you to dig them up if it's clear they're just being grown as an ornamental or for your own personal baking. However, if you plan to grow them on a commercial scale, you can expect to knock on your door, or worse, the DA, as was the case for Cody Zong when he was caught with roughly $500 million worth of opium poppies growing in his backyard in 2017, though his charges were later dropped. Even if they aren't opium poppies, all poppy seeds contain small amounts of opium, which is why anyone selling them commercially to be used in food products must rinse them to watch out as much of the opium as possible before selling them in your supermarket. Even if they weren't washed, it's very unlikely that you would see any side effects of opium in such small concentration. So don't worry about that everything bagel or lemon poppy seed muffin. Even if you grew the seeds yourself and sprinkled them in with a little bit of reckless abandon, it would take a lot of them for you to feel the full effects of opium. With that in mind, you may still want to skip them if you have a drug test coming up, as in some instances they can still give you a false positive reading for opiates in your system. Whether you know poppies for their beautiful blooms, complicated history, or as a crunchy addition to your favorite baked goods, I hope you enjoyed taking this deeper dive into all the roles they've played, both in our past and present. If you like the show, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Rooted.Pod, we're on YouTube at Rooted.Podcast, and you can check out our website, RootedPod.com, for transcripts, updates, and so much more. Special thanks to Eric Cluxon for writing and performing our theme music, and of course, a special thank you to all of you for being here. Until next time, be kind to yourselves, be kind to the earth, and just like a plant, drink your water. <laughs>